This morning, to close out these passages, I want to give you four reasons of necessity that the disciples must be kept in Christ by God the Father. Four reasons that these disciples must be kept. The idea of them being kept has been throughout these passages in multiple places. And it's here once again in these passages of this idea of the keeping. But here we have necessary reasons that they must be kept. We've just seen in verse 12 the context of the fulfillment of Scripture. And in verse 13 that there has been a granting of this joy. It's not just any joy, but it's the joy of Christ. But now I come to you, O Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy. Jesus praying, they may have my joy. They may possess a joy. It's my joy, and it's made full in themselves. They will need this joy made full in themselves to complete the task and to be left in the world to live in this world. Although the Son will ascend, He will still be with them in the sense of the Holy Spirit, and yet they will still be living in this world, a world of sin. And great difficulty. Firstly, this morning the disciples must be kept because they are entrusted with the word. The disciples must be kept because they are entrusted with the word. Verse 14, I have given them your word. I have given them your word. They've been entrusted with the very word of God. These disciples have been taught by the Lord Jesus in person. They've walked with Him. They heard Him teach and preach. They watched Him perform the miracles. They saw Him lived His life. They touched Him. They ate with Him. They fellowshiped with Him. And He gave them His Word. But here the Lord Jesus says, I have given them your Word. It's showing us once again that congruency between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. The Son has been preaching this word. He says, I and the Father are one. And here He prays, Lord, I have given them Your word. As one pastor noted, the Lord Jesus is saying, I have given them that precious thing in precarious hands. Now, it's one thing for the Father and the Son to work together. It's one thing for the Father to give His word and will to the Son, for He and the Son are in full agreement on the word and the will. The Son having the same essence of the Father. They are one in will. They are one in power and authority. But now, 
Jesus is saying, I will leave them here and I have given them your word. I have entrusted it with them. These weak disciples, the ones that are trying to decide who's going to be on the right hand and the left hand of the Lord Jesus, the ones who see him uh, coming across Uh, the water and they look at them and they're scared to death. The one who goes out to him and and in weakness uh, in the moment almost drowns. Jesus says, I have given them your word. They must be kept as they are entrusted with the word. Jesus knows they need to be kept. They need to be kept in him. That the Father needs to keep them. Because they have the very word of God that they will take forward. They will live it and they will preach it. This is the whole point of the the recording of, of Luke in the book of Acts. He's saying, look at what happened here. Here's what God did after the ascension of the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit through these disciples. That whole recording is about that word that they've been entrusted with that Jesus says right here. That whole recording is is the recognition of how they were used of God and they were being kept to do that work. Jesus recognizes the very weakness of men, even though they may be believing and converted men. He sees their weakness and he knows if the plan is to go forward, if this gospel is to be preached to the ends of the earth, Father, you must keep them. You must keep them. Reminds us of this necessity of the keeping that is spoken of. And when Jesus says, I will not lose one of them. Not one of them will be snatched out of my hand. And he says, not one of them will be snatched out of the Father's hand. It's a necessity. This is how salvation has become so weak in the churches is that most don't realize they need to be kept. Yes, We as the church have been entrusted with the word of God. But just because we've been entrusted with it doesn't mean we're able to keep ourselves. It doesn't mean that we have this innate power in and of ourselves as humans to do this great work. As if we were apart from God the Father. We are in need of being kept. It's true here of the disciples. And it's true... Of those who will follow because in verse 20 note, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of those present disciples at at the time, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The word of God established in the person and work of the son on this earth. Now Jesus is saying, keep these disciples because they've been entrusted with that word and the word that they're going to go out and they're going to preach and live and take forward is the same word that's going to be believed upon by numerous disciples for centuries upon centuries. And those disciples need to be kept too. That's us, the believing ones today. 
We need to be kept. And we've been entrusted with that word. Number two, they need to be kept because the world hates them. As one writer put it, the world hates them. Just after this phrase in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Even as I am not of the world, he says. The world hated them. J.C. Rowell says, Danger was around them on every side. Weakness was their present characteristic. It's in one sense giving us a caution and a warning as believers, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in this very day. Those disciples were living in a present world that uh, was coming against them, and yet we still live in that context to this very day. And there's still a sense of which there's things about this world that are attractive to us. It's a dangerous world. It hates us, and it also seeks to allure us. We have to remember that remaining flesh is still a part of this world and there are things that appeal to our remaining flesh in this world and that will be a consistent battle. And we have to recognize this world, even though we are believing, those who are believers will still have the taint of this world in that remaining flesh. And Jesus recognizes the fact that the world hates them and he recognizes that they still have that allurement all around them. Thomas Manton said, if we could live as fish in the salt sea without any taint of saltiness, the danger would not be so great, but not so. People who don't really like, uh, you know, seafood, ocean, fish, what's one of the things they often will say about it? Well, it just tastes like the sea. Okay. It swims around a bunch of salt water. And so, therefore, it's got a little of that flavor to it. I don't know if that's every fish is that way, but, you know, you hear people say things like that. And this is Manton's illustration in this phrase. It's not as though we can live in this world and not have the taint of the saltiness of this world or the the taint of this world still as a part of what we're doing. And that's what makes this world so dangerous. This present world is a, a dangerous place. There's the world itself that that lives in the fullness of its sin and it goes out and it hates the things of God and it hates the people of God. And then there's also the remaining flesh that believers still have that calls us to struggle with 
the allurements of this world. It's almost as that that which hates God is still tainting us to some degree. And at times, at times, we fall to that taint. And Jesus says they need to be kept. They need to be kept, Father. They need to be kept. Last week I preached very plainly and even somewhat bluntly to you about the doctrine of election and predestination. And this week you should see there's a real comfort in that doctrine. What is going to keep us from falling away? What is going to keep us? Is it our own powers? Our own personal willpower is going to keep us to the very end? No, Jesus is saying they need to be kept, Father. I'm leaving them in your hands that you would be kept or that they would be kept in you. brings us to a place, as one writer noted, to kind of ask a question. Why does the world hate us? He gives an answer. He says, because we are not members of its commonwealth. Why does the world hate us? Because we are not members of its commonwealth. Now, we don't know, we don't, the, the word commonwealth is not a word that we use very often. If you've read much history and you've read about something like the British commonwealth, you would recognize the sense that there's this, uh, you know, this land of Britain and, and the, the land of Britain for uh, centuries had a king. And when that, uh, you know, the, the British Navy would go out and uh, business people would go out and they would conquer certain lands, those lands would become a part of the British Commonwealth. And up until the mid-20th century, there was quite a few lands like India and other places that were a part of the British Commonwealth. They were under the authority of the Commonwealth. The example here is one to say the world hates us because we're not members of its Commonwealth. We're not under their authority. We're not under their premises. We're saying, no, we're not going to bow the knee to you or the things that you want us to bow the knee to. We're going to worship the one true living God. Our worship will not go to the idols of this world. And you have to admit, there's lots of idolatry in our culture today, even though we haven't fashioned them of wood and, and, and stone. There's lots of idols. watching some years ago a video of uh, the Beatles uh, arriving at New York City for a concert and the streets were lined with young people screaming and cheering and going wild over these guys who were going to play musical instruments. And they showed documentary film from the concert itself thousands 
in this stadium, thousands of people. I mean, they were clearly in a mode of of just being outlandishly in worship of all that was going on. It happens this very day. So many people are so glad that we're able to go back now and do what? Go out in this place or that place. And one of the things they want to do is we want to go to concerts. And you see videos of these concerts and people are just worshiping everything before them. saying every form of entertainment is evil. I'm saying where's our heart in the context of that entertainment? We have idols of this day. No, I didn't go out in my backyard and uh, take a, a, a tree and cut it down and begin to fashion some face in it and uh, sit back in my backyard with a little fire and uh, start to no, I didn't do that. We make fun of that, but how different is it that somebody like Kim Kardashian has millions of followers who follow and listen to everything she says because she did what exactly? Well, what is it that she did? We don't even know, but they're going to follow. They're going to follow. We're not a part of their commonwealth. We're saying we don't love your idols. We worship one God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world hates us for it. But then Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones asked another question. And I think it's an important one. The first question was, why does the world hate us? But Lloyd-Jones says, does the world hate us? I wonder, he says, if it does not, it is simply because we are very poor Christians. Now, I will give you a little caution. I think there are sometimes as Christians, we begin to take as a badge of honor the fact that we can just make people hate us. And I think that's wrong, too. If you think that your whole purpose in life is to say, I'm a Christian, and then go make everybody else mad as Hades, that they can just hate you because just seeing you come makes them hate you and Christ and everything about it, then you're wearing the wrong badge. Jesus went and ate with sinners. And he didn't treat them like sometimes we treat others. But that being said... If you go among those who are unbelieving and you live a Christ-like life before those people and they cannot stand the things that you stand for, although you stand for truth and you do it graciously, well, that's on them. And that's the way it should be. Too many Christian groups, so-called today, are seeking to make Christ more palatable so that even the world will be comfortable before God. I'm going to say something, and I want you to understand it. If you come to worship God thinking that you're supposed to be comfortable before God, then you don't know who God is. There should always be a level of discomfort 
for all of us before the one true living holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. I cannot find my comfort before God in his existence or in his being. I find my comfort before God in his son, in his son. Hopefully we will live lives, Christ-like lives, seeking to live out, even speak out, the truth of God's Word. And when we're persecuted for it, understand that it will be true. Understand that it will be a part of life. And don't be shocked or surprised. But if you say you're living a Christian life and you never are once even given some facial expression for being a Christian, then maybe you're not much different than the world. On the other hand, remember, don't make it your life's goal to make everybody hate you and Christ too. Don't be a jerk Christian. Don't do it. Just for the sake of doing it. Thirdly, this morning, the disciples must be kept because they are surrounded by evil. Verse 15, I do not ask you, Jesus saying, I, Jesus, the Son, I do not ask you, the Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Evil is all around. We know that Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. And yet he has much power in the context of the whole of the world. And especially in the sense of the time of this prayer. For the Lord Jesus has not gone to the cross and he has not ascended and, uh, excuse me, and not been resurrected from the dead and ascended to be with the Father. So there is a sense in which Satan, at this particular time, had even more reign. And that's what we have to understand is the context of what has been taken here. Satan had been given great leash. Paul alludes and tells us that there are things taking place in all of the world which are of the prince of the power of the air. There are things happening in in the idea of, of what is spiritual that is working in and about all the time. Now, sadly, there are some have taken these doctrines and gone in very strange directions. But the fact of the matter is there are still things happening in the context of the whole of the universe which we don't fully understand. There is a spiritual war that is taking place. How many demons are still functioning and in reality? I'm not sure of the number. There's a reality to the context. Satan has his minions. Sadly, this is the context of what it means to be an unbeliever, that the whole of your flesh, remaining flesh, is still subservient to the context of what Satan would want. 
That's hard for people to understand and believe. But you understand, this is why Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day that you are of your father, the devil. That word of is a very important word. You are of your father, the devil. You're of that same sense and essence. This is who we are, sinners left to ourselves. We are of our father, the devil. We are inclined to that which is sin. We are inclined to it in our very natures. We even enjoy that which is sin left to ourselves. And we are pulled and pushed by that very sin nature. And Satan is of that same ilk. So Jesus knew these disciples were going to be surrounded by evil and they must be kept. They were going to be surrounded by the evil of that which is spiritual and that which is the context of the, the spiritual realm in the sense of what is taking place. There are real angels and real demons. And yet there is a sense in which he knows the spiritual context of humanity. Unbelievers are rebels against God. They hate him. They can be smiling unbelievers who still hate God. They can be nice unbelievers who fix cocoa and cookies for their neighbor, but they still hate God. They will not bow the knee to the one true living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They can set up all kind of, uh, of good works in the context of this world. They can have soup kitchens and all those kinds of things and still hate God. They hate his son. You realize, even if you're a person that says, you know, Jesus is a pretty nice guy. He lived and he was a good little teacher and he did some nice things and, you know, he performed those little miracles at his time. He was a pretty nice guy. That's an affront to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not just a nice, decent guy. A, he's the very son of God. B, as the son of God, he came to this earth and lived a perfect life. Never sinned, not even one time. And see, he died. His blood was shed. He became the once and only sacrifice. So to just simply sum him up as a decent guy is an affront to the very personhood of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't be mad at the world for that in a sense and scream and yell at them all the time because they don't get it. It takes special revelation. It takes a special work. But it just shows you how far gone we are as humans. That we could even sit and say, oh yeah, that Jesus, he was a nice guy. But we never want to seriously consider who he is. Jesus knew his disciples were going to be surrounded by evil. The evil that was left in the natures of the people of this world that they would deal with. The evil that was surrounding them in the context of Satan's rule and reign. Even though after Christ, Christ is the one who condemns him. And Christ rules and reigns in his ascension in a way that has never been seen before on the context of this earth. 
and yet Satan is still active and living. Jesus knew the evil of the nice little person who would say, oh yeah, Jesus, he was a nice guy. To just simply say Jesus is a nice guy, that's evil. That's evil. It's an evil that the world doesn't even recognize as evil. They think they're doing something good to say to Christians, oh yeah, he was a nice guy. Now you and I don't have to return their evil with evil. But sometimes we do have to say, I'm sorry, you've misunderstood. You've misunderstood badly. Jesus is not a nice guy. He's the very son of God. He is the living, reigning king of the universe. And you and I need to bow to him. Repent of our sin and believe in him alone to save us from our sin. Jesus knew this is the world they would be left in. They needed to be kept because they were surrounded by evil. As George Newton put it, from outward danger or else from inward damage. He's recognizing both are true. The outward things around them and even their own inward remaining flesh. Well, lastly, this morning, they must be kept because unless they are kept, all is lost. They must be kept unless they are kept, all is lost. And you say, Brandon, it can't be that grave. Aren't you being a little overdramatic? I mean, we know your personality. You can kind of get dramatic on some things. So we know. We love you, brother, but we know your facial expressions, your tone of voice, the way you can inflect and move things up and down. We know. So aren't you being just a little dramatic? Let's choose our words more wisely, Brandon. Be thoughtful for a moment, Brandon. Now I say to you, these words are of the utmost importance. Because in these words, we are recognizing from top to bottom that they are in need of being kept because what we are seeing here is the outworking of God's decree and providence. These disciples were entrusted with his word. If they are not kept, then that word will not go forward. If the world that hates them is able to destroy them, then that word will not go forward. If they are surrounded by evil, even the evil of their own remaining flesh, and that evil overtakes them, then the word will not go forward. So therefore, they must be kept because unless they are kept, all is lost. It's the providential outworking of God's whole decree that this plan was made before the beginning of time and not one iota of this plan should be changed. Not one iota of this plan must be changed. This plan must be worked out in every ounce, in every way, and God knows it, and His Son knows it. Father and Son working together in this prayer, the connection, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that not one would be lost and that the Word would go forward. 
If these disciples are not kept, then the word is not pressed on to the next disciples. And if it's not kept, those disciples will not move into the next generation with the others and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And you today, those of you who have believed, who have repented in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been kept because they were kept. We need to be thankful. That our covenant eternal God made a promise to save a people for himself to work out the means by which they would be saved. The preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the going forth of the word, the actual convening of local bodies of Christ. He worked out the means that even those of us today may be kept. So you see, if these disciples are not kept, then all will be lost. And we're here to say and give praise and honor that those disciples were kept for the very purpose which God had set them aside for until the day of their own death, that they would be brought up to be with the Lord Jesus and the next generation, and the next generation, even to this very day, those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are being kept by the Father and the Son in the work of the Holy Spirit. The Son Himself interceding on our behalf right now, this very day. The Father keeping us, the Son interceding for us, the Spirit continually applying the work of the truth of the Word into our souls, and we are being kept for all eternity. And none will be lost. Since our keeping is so sure, does it give us a right to spurn the commandments of Christ and not follow them and say, well, he gave me into the hands of the Father, so I don't really have to keep those commandments. A true believer will want to. A true believer has had their desires changed. They will want to follow those commandments. And if you don't want to, then there's a problem. When a true believer doesn't follow the commandments, a true believer wants to repent to confess and repent. Wants to repent of their sin. And wants and desires and asks that they would be kept from those sins. Our keeping does not leave us to a place, nor does it lead us to a place that we can say, well, because I'm, I'm, I'm kept, I'll do what I want. I'll sin all the more because grace abounds. Paul says, may it never be. Our keeping is a, is a place for our praise. Our keeping is a place for us to glory in God alone, the three persons of the Trinity. Our keeping is a place for us to be humbled. That 
people of a race of sinners like ours would actually want to follow God. Are you going to glory in Him today? Or will you walk away and start this new week the same way you did the last? Will you only think about yourself and what you have to do? Or you think about what it means to be a disciple who's been kept by the very grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. you alone sent your son to die for sinners that your son would procure their salvation and that your Holy Spirit would apply that salvation to the souls of many we praise you for this revelation in your word that we are kept by your grace alone and nothing else. We praise you for giving us a glimpse of the prayer life of our Lord that shows us these truths. We praise you for our Lord as the Son of God coming in human nature. that we could see him pray, see him glory in you. As we come to the time of the table, Lord, bring us to this time to think rightly about our own souls, asking the questions of ourselves. By the power of your spirit, that we would deal with our sins. truly are weak and yet we are thankful that we can come and honor the one true living king the Lord Jesus Christ as our great savior it's in his name we pray amen